0: I'll be reading from Galatians chapter four. It's found on page 974 in your PUREC Bible. Starting verse 21. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord.
1: With God's word open before us, let's ask the Lord today to speak to our hearts very specifically uh, in that way that takes us that next step, that ministers what we most need today. So let's ask that today in Jesus' name. Father, we do come before you and bless you for your goodness. Thank you for giving us this book, which though devils and, and men have tried to destroy, has resisted all attempts at being destroyed we thank you, oh God, that this is your word, that you have preserved it and given it to us. And we thank you that it says, it teaches us, we find in the knowledge of Christ, it gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so we ask you today, bless this word to our hearts. Lord, fill us with your spirit. We need an anointing. I need an anointing, Lord, to minister your word, and every one of us needs an anointing to hear it, to hear it understand it, to take it in, to have it uh, go to the very bottom of our hearts that it might affect our lives. Lord, we are asking today that we will be different people as we leave this house. We are asking today that that next step will indeed be accomplished in our hearts and that you will enable us to hear, enable us to believe, enable us to receive in every sense of the word, that word that you have for us today. And so, Father, do us good, we pray. Lord, we bless you that no one loves like you love. We bless you that the proof of it is the cross of Jesus Christ and all that he has done. But we thank you that that is not a finished work in the sense that it is still going on in our hearts and conforming us to the image of Christ and fitting us for heaven. So, Father, do that work today, we pray. Pour out your spirit upon us and do grant your word uh, and its power to be known in our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Well, today we come to the end, we're coming to the end of chapter 4, and if you'll remember the outline at the beginning, uh, each two-chapter section had a particular emphasis, and so we're coming to the end of the section that is mostly doctrinal in character, but it's the section where Paul combats legalism. Now, the legalists are those that believe that the way to God is to obey the religious rules. And in the case of these Galatians to add their performance to the performance of Christ as if somehow that were not enough. And they believe they can earn God's favor. And that of course is the exact opposite message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as I pointed out, that legal way of thinking, to think like a legalist, is a a default setting with us. We gravitate to it very naturally. We just tend to believe we get what we deserve or what we earn. And, And thus we very frequently, if not all the time, interact with God on the basis of our performance, how well we think we're doing or how poorly we think we're doing. But today the Apostle Paul is going to give, as it were, a final blow against this legalism, the legalism of these false teachers that he was having to oppose in the Galatian church. And in this final blow, he points uh, to them... a a Holy Spirit given object lesson and he, he calls it an allegory it's a symbolic illustration of the fact that grace on the one hand and dependence on works on the other are complete opposites they are mutually exclusive concepts and as he does this he's going to show us three very encouraging things he's going to show us what the gospel is about who the gospel is for And what the gospel produces. And so that's what we're going to look at today under the title, The Gospel Illustrated. So let's begin and just look at the three things that this passage shows us. So let's begin at verse 21. Verse 21 says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now this section deals up to verse 26 with what the gospel is about. And so when he says to be under the law, that that you want to be under the law, what he's talking about is this, that you have taken the law and made it a means of relating to God, your means of obtaining his favor. And and as Paul showed previously, it's, it's an impossibility. It never works out. It's bonded, it's slavery, so that you're truly under the law with all of its weight. That's how he sees it. But in the next verses, Paul is going to allude to a story from the life of Abraham. Now, I don't have time today to read uh, three chapters of Genesis so that we get the whole sweep of this story, so let me just summarize it for you. In Genesis chapter 15, God makes this glorious promise to Abraham that he is going to have a seed, a glorious seed, and this seed is going to be... You know, so bountiful that it'll be like the stars in the heaven, you won't be able to count them. It'll be like the sand of the seashore, you won't be able to count it. That's the image that he uses. And so he says, you're going to have a seed. But of course, if you're going to have a seed, you have to have a child. You know, it starts there. So we get to chapter 16, and at this particular point, Abraham is 86, Sarah is 76. And so they begin to despair that this promise isn't going to be fulfilled. They grow impatient. And so, well, okay, maybe we we better get cracking here. We've got to make this thing happen. And so what they do is they, uh, Sarah says to Abraham, I will give you Hagar. I will give you, you know, my slave woman, and she will become a wife to you. And you can have a child by her so that this promise can be fulfilled. Now, it works. They have Ishmael. They have a son. But then we come to chapter 17. And in chapter 17, God comes to Abraham again. He says, I am your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. And he spells out the terms, uh, the covenant terms that he is going to establish with Abraham and with his seed. And he makes a lot of promises in that context. Well, Abraham hears seed and he thinks, uh, Lord, may Ishmael live before you forever. And he says, well, I've heard you. I'm going to bless Ishmael, but that's not what I'm talking about. No, Sarah is going to have a son. Sarah, your old wife, she is going to have a son. And this seed that I'm going to bless in a way that none other are blessed, this seed will be my work. It will not be your work. And so, of course, Isaac is born. That is the promise that is made. So that's the story, that's the backdrop. That's the big picture behind what this, these verses, this section talks about. And let's look at verses 23 and 24. No, excuse me, 22 and 23 that kind of give this big picture. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise it was the work of God the act of God the grace of God so the first son is born through a fleshly effort to obtain the promise in a sense Abraham says well uh, you know I'm, I'm, I'm going to fu- be my own fulfiller I'm going to be my own savior and I will fulfill the promise by my own work but that second son that son is born as the result The direct result of the promise. That son is born by miracle. That son is an act of God, you see, not an act of man. And then he's going to apply that. So let's look at verses 24 to 26. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from from Mount Sinai. Bearing children for slavery. It's that bondage he's been talking about for a few chapters here. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is, it's an image of, a reflection of, you see, a type of Mount Sinai in Arabia from whence came the law. That's where the law was received. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. So again, he's applying this. And and what is he saying? First of all, he talks about two covenants. He says, on the one hand, there is a covenant of works. And on the other hand, there's a covenant of grace. This covenant of works is, and this is what we've been talking about here in the course of this study. It's the branch that says, this is what man will do to save himself, you see. Whereas the grace is what God has done through Jesus Christ to save us. And then he likens it to two cities. He says there's an earthly, a fleshly city. And then there's a heavenly one. In other words, the one is built by man. The other is built by God. It's God's work from start to finish. So what is he doing here? He's just saying, look, on the one hand, you have law and legalistic bondage, and that corresponds to this present Jerusalem because he came unto his own and his own received him not, you remember. He came to Jerusalem and they wouldn't have him. In fact, they're the ones that crucified him. And they didn't see that they had a need for a savior from their souls. No, they just wanted a savior from Roman rule. And again, you see the fleshliness. You see that what's in it for me. That's all that motivated them. They never saw it communion with God, to be in with him. And you know that's so like the world we live in today that doesn't want to receive Jesus unless it's on some terms they can control. They don't need a savior for their soul. They only want someone to deliver them from anything that hinders them from getting what they want. that's, That's the only use he would be you see. And folks, there's a pointed message here that the apostle is making to these Galatians, to Abraham, concerning him, and to all of us. And that is, we need God to fulfill his promise. We need God to save and to satisfy us. The last thing in the world we need is our own work, our own attempts at self-salvation. Because they always fail. They always fail. They never get us anywhere, you see. Oh, how we need to let it sink in to every one of our hearts that we are not asked to save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. And how liberating it is to know that he's not surprised at your sin. He's not expecting different. Instead, he made provision to forgive you of your sin, to conquer that sin. And then on top of that, to heal you from inside out. To make you go from darkness to a life of light. From slavery to a life of freedom. To dying rather than living. That's what he has come to do you see. And so that's why he describes the present Jerusalem as in bondage. Because they don't believe the gospel you see. They don't believe the love of God and the goodness of God. That he proclaims and that he proves. They don't believe that. And, and you know like Jerusalem... The source of all our trouble is not believing we are loved infinitely and unconditionally by this God. Folks, it does, it traces down to not believing that love. Now let me give you just a a few examples of that. But um, if we fall into temptation, let's say. What, what's going on there? And if we succumb to that temptation, what well, we believe that some sin or some gratification of our flesh could give us something he could not. Something better than his glorious loving plan for us. That's what we have believed. We think his love is somehow, it's either not great enough, or strong enough, or not personal enough to actually satisfy us. And so we go for something else. Something else. Here's another example, our circumstances maybe, and and they afflict us, or they overwhelm us at particular chapters of our life, or they depress us. And somehow in that we believe that he doesn't love us enough to watch over all those things, all the circumstances, and to order it for our good, even though he's promised exactly that that all things will work together for our good, that the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works and all his works shall praise him and his saints shall bless him because they will ultimately see he led me all the way. Ultimately see, no, he he intended that for good as he always does. And then another example, if we maybe live with discouragement and self-condemnation and, you know, in that case, we're not believing That what Jesus did was enough. Not believing he loved and loves us enough to forgive us every day and all day long. And to grow us every day. Until not only do we know Jesus, but we begin to look like Jesus. We begin to live like Jesus. He's intended, you and me, if we're in Christ, for nothing less than that. Nothing less than living him. Uh, We read this morning... Uh, in our discipleship class, the words of Colossians, where it talks about, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are made full in him. You are to participate in that. That's what when Peter says, you are partakers of the divine nature. What a thing to say. Paul prays, you be filled with all the fullness of God again. Wow! That's what God intends. And oh, let us not shortchange him or us by believing anything less than that. But then if you come at it from the other side, the other hand, let's say, if you could only see and believe that you are the well-beloved child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, what a difference that would make. Now think about that. I I want you to try to imagine it. You, you, You live in a realm... And you are the child of the king who has absolute authority, unquestioned power, infinite riches. He's got everything. And that's who you are. You are that child. No one has more power, more authority, or more love than your dad. He has it. Now why would you fear anything if that was the case? You're the favorite son or the favorite daughter of the king himself. And you wouldn't fear what people think, or what they say, or what they do. You would have every reason to live in absolutely total confidence. And with his limitless resources, why the sky would be the limit as to what you could do in your future. But folks, that is not for the imagination only. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's your reality, that's who you are. That's why the gospel says you are free indeed. That's why the gospel says to rejoice always. That's why it says we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's why it says his kingdom is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And many, many other things to describe what is true of us if we're in Jesus. See, he wants you full of joy. He wants you fulfilled. He wants you experiencing him Every day, this infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. He wants you living like you are more than a conqueror through him who loves you. That's what he wants. That's what he intends. That's what Jesus gave his lifeblood for. Charles Spurgeon um, tells this story about a day when he had been... You know, ministering in various ways and he says he was riding home and he was just incredibly weary and as he said sore depressed just very depressed and then he says like a lightning flash God sent this word to his mind my grace is sufficient for you and so he thought about that and he said wait a second the Lord God Almighty is saying that to me big God Little me, little problems, you know, little things going on. And he says he laughed right out loud. He just laughed out loud and said, is grace sufficient for me? Well, I think so. <laughs> I, I think that's probably the case. And he gives this image in, the, in where he's writing about this, this image of a little fish, you know, just swimming around in the Thames River and being afraid that the Thames River is going to run out of water, you know, and that it's just, just going to be up for him. Silly, ridiculous, you see. But you see, it's just as ridiculous for you to think that your Savior will run out of love and out of goodness for you and your situation, you and your life, you and those you care about, those you love, that He will run out of that love. It's ridiculous. It'll never happen. You see, the love and the grace of your Heavenly Father who gave His Son for you, the love and the grace of your bridegroom, King Jesus, are greater than anything you can ever throw at them. Far greater. So dare to believe how much he loves you. You know, the Apostle Paul in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says an interesting thing. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, he says. In fact, I do not even judge myself. In other words, he is saying this, the gospel is meant the work has been done for me by the Lord Jesus Christ. All that other, it's none of my business. I have just one thing to do. And that is to believe how much he loves me. He proved it on the cross. He proved it by saying my sins, past and present and future are all gone. He proves it by the fact that he is now constantly pleading his victorious work before the Father on my behalf for every aspect of my welfare, inside and out. It's all proved, you see. Folks, his grace is sufficient for you. No matter who you are or where you are or what's going on, it is enough. So believe it. Believe it like Spurgeon did and laugh out loud at the ridiculousness of him losing his love for you. Or ever forsaking you. He's promised it would never happen. Well let's move then to the second point, And that is really taken from just one verse. Verse 27. And that is who the gospel is for. Verse 27 is a quote from Isaiah 54 and verse 1. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now that's speaking right into this picture, you see. What man will do versus what God will do. And and look at this picture, you've got two women here. So Hagar, she was young, she was fertile, Probably at this point a good deal more attractive than Sarah. But look at Sarah. She is old. She is infertile. She's barren. She's probably comparatively unattractive at that particular point. And see back there in that culture, there's more more to this picture you see. In that culture, they were judged. Women were judged by their children. Barrenness was one of the worst possible things. It was like they were complete failures. But you see, that's the point. That's who the gospel is for. Complete failures who will be made to rejoice and be fruitful by God's grace and by God's intervention. They, the desolate. And I don't know what your kind of desolation looks like, what your background is, where you struggle, what your difficulty is. But you see, that desolation is done away in Jesus Christ. He delivers, he fulfills. These are the kind Christ saves. The gospel is for you no matter what your present or what your past was. So this is, in one sense, how we have to see ourselves. You know, see ourselves as just these, the barren ones who were loved into the most glorious fruitfulness a a human being can have. Loved in Jesus Christ. You remember that picture of the tax collector we've talked about many times who goes up to the the temple to pray and he won't even lift his eyes. He's so conscious of his sin. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't care who you are. That's your testimony. Your sin is black. Your sin is great. Your sin is unexcusable. But God, but God, he wiped all that off the table. Now, when I say, but God, I'm referring to Ephesians chapter 2. And and it's such a glorious picture here that I don't want us to miss it. So if you'll turn uh, your Bible a couple of pages beyond, you'll come to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And just listen to this, not for theology, not for anything else, but the story of coming from darkness to light. Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you were dead But it's on record in those heavenly places right there, right now in Jesus Christ. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me stop there for a second. I read that and I think, man, (laughs) it's going to take all eternity to tell how great those riches and that grace and that treasure and that goodness that He poured out on you and me, how good it is. Take all that time because it's that great. It's that good. Then, verse 8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Folks, if we're in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's our story. That's us right there. Darkness to light, power of Satan unto God, death to everlasting, glorious, fulfilled life. That's our story, you say. So what do we learn here? The gospel is for the worst of the worst. Even more than that, the gospel is for every person, everyone who will dare to believe it. Even more than that, the gospel is for you. The gospel is, you are not an exception in any sense of the word. Well, that brings us finally then to what the gospel produces. And that's these last four verses. So let's read them together. Verse 28. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is also now. You remember that? Ishmael was the the, the occasion for Sarah sending Hagar out and away. Was Ishmael mocking, persecuting Isaac. Mocking Isaac. Now so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now what do we learn here? Well, I think first of all, we notice that the legalists have a hard time being at peace with anyone but themselves. They persecute others, and there's a whole history in the church of that very thing. So this Jerusalem, look at that Jerusalem that he's talking about. They persecuted Jesus Christ. Oh, they killed Jesus Christ. Then they persecuted and killed his followers, and and then they threw Paul into prison. Okay, you know that—that's what led to his Roman imprisonment. They persecuted everything. But why? Why why do the legalists persecute? Well, they persecute because they have to keep proving that they are right. And that they have earned their standing. You see, they're nervous and they're touchy and they're defensive. And they're always weighed in the balances. So everyone else has to be proved wrong or condemned in some way. If they're not a carbon copy of the legalists. And as you can see, that's bondage. That's slavery. That is not a happy place to be. And and notice the solemn warning here. Cast out the bondwoman. That's a scary statement for legalists. Now, folks, if you will read the Gospels, you will see that the only ones Jesus got angry with were these legalists. He has time for sinners. Even the, you remember, the the harlots and the tax collectors? He's got plenty of time and attention to give to them, so much so that he gets derided by the legalists. You know, and, and how did they, you remember, they accused him? He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's who he is. Isn't that one of the most glorious things ever said? (laughs) Talk about something to wear as a badge of honor. Our Savior is the friend of the vilest of the vile. That's who he is, you see. But the legalist Christ very solemnly warned. He was angry at them because of their self-righteousness, because of their superiority to everyone else, because in their heart they wanted to condemn to hell anyone who wasn't just like they are. But what was Christ's spirit? Jesus says he didn't come to destroy men's lives but to save them. That's who he is. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's who he is. Folks, this is our master and oh how we need to follow in his steps. In this as well as we apply the gospel. Let us love those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ because they are made in the very image of God and they they may come to know him and many have as people have shared the gospel and because our master actually came to seek and to save those very people boy let us never forget that scripture tells us this amazing glimpse into heaven there is joy in heaven rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents and oh let that be our heart as well but let us also love other believers even if they aren't just like we are, you see. You know, you hear some Christians say of others, well, they don't know this, and they don't know that, or they don't do this. In other words, they don't act just like we do. Well, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? If any man thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. We don't have a platform that we know everything there is to know. We don't have that platform at all. So, folks, the gospel teaches us not to lean on what we know or what we do, even the tiniest shred, but to look to and lean on Jesus Christ and him alone for everything. All our standing, all our identity. And folks, that's the whole point of the story in this passage. When Abraham tried to do it by his own effort and his own performance, he blew it and he received nothing but grief as a result. And there's a larger story there.